Today's lesson text comes from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 1, verses 16 through 40. Verses 29 through 45. As soon as they, being Jesus and the disciples, left the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon Peter and Andrew, with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they took Jesus about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to minister to them. That evening at sunset, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door. And he cured many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. But he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew who he was. And in the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. And when they found him, they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. He answered, Let us go on to the neighboring towns, so that I may proclaim the message there. For this is what I came to do. And he went throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. A leper came to him, begging him, and kneeling, he said to him, If you choose, you can make me clean. Moved with indignation, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I do choose. Be made clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. After sternly warning him, Jesus sent him away at once, saying to him, See that you say nothing to anyone but go, show yourself to a priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But the man went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the word so that Jesus could no longer go into the, a town openly, but had to stay out in the country. And people came to Jesus from every quarter. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts may be an honor and a glory to you. Amen. So today's text begins with Peter's point of view. I added in a few Jesuses to make it clear what was going on because we were jumping in the middle of the chapter. But this first little section of verse 29 to 31 where Jesus heals Simon or Peter's mother-in-law is told specifically from Peter's perspective. And as regards fever, we don't know anything about specific diseases because back in the day, Fever was itself considered the disease. There's no idea of symptoms or anything else. And while my translation says that after the woman's been healed, she gets up and begins to serve them, the Greek is very clear that she gets up and begins to minister to them, showing that there was a mercy in Jesus healing her. So we gotta have this first little vignette. And what we're going to find with today's readings is we have almost four stories that on the surface of it seem a little disparate, but they're going to all connect together into a big chain today. 
But the main thing that's going on with this, after they leave the synagogue, and if you remember last week, Jesus was preaching at the synagogue, and he was preaching it hot. He was preaching it and getting so much conviction that a demon stood up and he said, you get out of here now. And everybody was amazed at the authority with which Christ was preaching. Mark comes us in immediately after that. So after the coffee hour, <laughs> as it is, they leave the synagogue and go to Peter's house. And he finds that Peter's mother-in-law has a fever and he says, hey, get up. And she, in thanks, goes and makes lunch. Now, this shows the personal stakes for Peter. One of the other things we looked at last week was the call of the disciples, where Jesus says, hey, come follow me. And there's the popular image of them leaving the nets, and Peter and Andrew and, and James and John, the son of Zebedee, they leave their dad on the boat. They, they walk off the job. But here we see for Peter that discipleship has a personal cost. Peter's a family man. It doesn't say anything about kids or anything else. But this being called by Jesus, even having Jesus come into his home and heal within his home, doesn't mean that Peter's discipleship can sit on its laurels. Can sit on its heels, sorry. Then it continues. So they're in Peter's house and they're relaxing and resting on the Sabbath as they should. And we get to verse 34. That evening at sunset, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons. So we're in the same day, and Jesus has been preaching on a Sabbath, and one of the Jewish rules on the Sabbath is you can't do any unnecessary labor. If you go to heavily Jewish neighborhoods still today, you'll see the Sabbath markers where you can't drive the car past. Well, it seems that in Capernaum, everybody waited till the Sabbath was over, and they started clamoring to go see this Jesus fellow who was... Shocking and galling enough to cast out a demon in the middle of a church service. That gets a bit of attention. And they bring all sorts of the sick people to them. And it also mentions two times that they bring to Jesus people who are possessed. In verse 32, they brought all who were sick and possessed. And they cured many who were sick and cast out many demons. Uh, if your translation here has a many, in verse 34, he cured many. It's the same word as they brought to him everything. So everybody comes to Jesus, and Jesus is curing everybody. It's a big, giant going on in this city that day. And we also see just the extent of Jesus' power and this conflict between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, where in our previous story from last week, the demon gets up and says, What do you want to do with us, Jesus, O Holy One? Here, Jesus is casting out with so much power, he doesn't even let the devils talk. So you have the afternoon, where Jesus heals the mother-in-law. You have the evening, where all the sick people come. And it must have gone on a while, because we get to verse 35. In the morning, <laughs> while well, it was still very dark. Now here, Mark is going to tip his hand as to what these little stories have to do with each other and how he actually views what's going on. There's the personal story of Peter and his mother-in-law. There's an excitement when he's talking about healings. I mean, that's an exciting thing to see. But Mark's going to tip off here that this ministry in Galilee is not being an initial success. If you'll recall, we spent an entire Sunday on Mark 
14 and 15. Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. And when Jesus had walked into that into that synagogue and started preaching, that's what he preached. Mark didn't even give us an explanation. He just assumed we knew it. And it was that preaching that brought out the demons to say, well, what do you have to do with us, O Jesus? And that's why Jesus cast him out. We get to this morning and we kind of end up in what I called last week a marking sandwich. Mark's a pretty simple gospel. It, it doesn't it doesn't tend to give you the deep philosophical things like John, but Mark's very clever in hiding bookends. We talked about how Jesus comes to Galilee to preach, and then fame goes, goes for him throughout all Galilee. Well, here we get an interesting bookend. I didn't spend much time on it because Mark is very short. But in the first sermon we did on Mark, we have verse 12, which is the temptation. So, and the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan. We end up with a sandwich here in verse 35. And in the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And you couldn't put it in the English, but in the Greek, Mark's very explicit here. He calls it a wilderness place. And it's a little hard, because I don't know how many of us know biblical geography. I'm not even that good at it. But calling it a wilderness place outside of the town is just completely the wrong words, unless you are specifically trying to draw this connection between the temptation in the wilderness and this moment of prayer of Christ. Because in Mark, this one gets even more interesting. We always talk about how Jesus goes out and he prays, and you've probably heard lots of sermons or pastors talk about following Jesus' example in prayer. Well, in Mark, Jesus is not much of a prayer. In fact, he only prays three times. Here, when he feeds the 5,000, and at Gethsemane in the, on the Hill of Olives before the crucifixion. It seems that in this, though bringing many who were sick or possessed in this fame that Jesus is getting really quick, that there is a temptation to him, enough to drive Jesus out back into the wilderness in that same conflict. Because while it shows Jesus' power that he doesn't let the demons speak in verse 34, it shows also that the people are kind of blind to what's going on. They can sense in Christ that he's doing the physical healings. They're seeing the deliverance as far as it is on the personal level, on the, on the human plane, as it were. But in silencing those demons, they're not seeing the conflict of the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of the world. They're not catching that it's, it's big spiritual power plays going on. So, Jesus... He's come to preach the kingdom, that the time is fulfilled, and that people need to repent and believe in their heart 
And the disciples, as you shall see, is a very long thing. Do not get it. Verse 36, Simon and his companions hunted for it. So while Jesus is out facing judgment, facing temptation, working through it, they, they go looking for him, and when they finally find him in 37, they say, and it's a convicting way of saying it. It's not polite. They say, everyone is searching for you. Hey, Jesus, if you want to get famous, this is totally working here. You're healing everybody, you're casting out all the demons, your fame's going everywhere. This is totally what you want, right? And Jesus kind of takes his hat to where his heart lies in his answers. Let us go on to the neighboring towns, so that I may proclaim the message, that is, the kingdom of God is come, repent, believe, there. For that is what I came to do. That for this reason I have come, as the King James has it, is important here to tie all these stories and this whole day together. And even getting chapter 1 into a big, nice, marking double-decker sandwich, Jesus is trying to preach about a decision of being in or out of the kingdom of God, a decision that cuts to the heart. Will you love God? Will you love sin? Will you accept the Son? Will you reject the Son? He's trying to make this the stumbling block. Mark's Jesus, as we will find again and again, is not one to mince words. <laughs> He's very in and out. But what's going on is, as he's working his miracles, as he's showing forth the kingdom and the power that's working through him, as what the demons would, would, are the only ones to call him in Mark, but that he shows that he's the Son of God, as he has this power to intervene, the people are already making a decision before they ever get to Jesus. They're making a decision that, that Jesus can heal them. They're making a decision that Jesus has the power to, to fix this. So they're coming to Christ with a decision already made, but it's not the appropriate one. Jesus wants to confront these people with the decision of the kingdom of heaven. What is in your heart? Will you follow the Beatitudes? Will you be a child of God or not? And the decision that's coming before the people even get to Christ is Christ is Jesus, the magic worker man. He's the son of God in a wonderful way. And we'll go to him and he will fix it. It's almost pulling us back to where I started in the very beginning of this with the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. They're predefining what Jesus is before Jesus gets any ability to speak to them about the weightier matters. And then they kind of sum this up at the ending of Mark. So Jesus sees that in the town that he's in Capernaum, the fame's going for the healing, and he's got a job to do with preaching the message. So we find him in 39, going throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in synagogues and casting out demons. So Jesus is here trying to stick with his program. He's been out in the desert, he's been tempted to get off track, but he goes back to his ministry, and he repeats what we saw in that synagogue last week, till he gets to verse 40. Where a leper comes to Christ and begging him and kneeling before him says, If you choose, you can make me clean. Now this one gives an interesting conundrum. We, we have the issue of Jesus is the very one who said, Whenever you ask in my name in prayer, it will be given you. 
But this one is going to actually end up a little inconvenient for Christ and his ministry. Which is why in verse 41, I actually favor what we call the Western tradition in Scholastic. Your Bible there may say that Jesus was moved with pity, or that he was moved with compassion. But the King James had it, he was moved with, um, and he was indignified. It, it, it insulted him, the question. And normally pastors take that to say, well, Jesus is insulted, that this guy thinks that Jesus wouldn't want to make him clean. The sense of the text here is Jesus is more indignant because he knows what this guy's going to do next. This leper comes up to him, and it's not an issue of the leper grabbing him as tradition has it. It's much more Jesus sees what this is going to cost his ministry to do. And it's almost good news in and of itself that he goes and does it anyways. Because Jesus stretches out his hand, and he heals it. And he says, I choose to be made clean. Great motivation for prayer. Go to Christ. He will choose. But 43, Christ, knowing what's coming next. After stirring and warning him, sent him away, saying, See that you say nothing to anyone. So Christ is here imploring him, for the sake of his mission, don't go spreading me as the miracle worker. Don't go spreading me as the pastor of the demons. Stick to the kingdom and the message that I want to proclaim. Then, he says, go and show yourself to a priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Then Jesus gives this man a very specific program that would push forth that gospel of preaching the kingdom had come. If this man had gone to the temple and done what Jesus wanted him to do, the priest would be in a rock and hard place if they wanted to say Jesus wasn't legitimate. Because the Levitical law says there's rules for who has leprosy, who doesn't, who's clean with it, who's cleansed of it. And in response of the priest seeing that someone's been cleansed of leprosy, they have to offer a sacrifice. Well, Jesus knows that if this man goes and offers the sacrifice, the priest in the temple will be very stuck. Because if they think that Jesus is working his miracles by some sort of deception and evil, well then the priests have offered sacrifices for something that God didn't do. But the law says that when someone is cleansed, God has done it and must be given sacrifices. So this would have been sending, as it were, kind of a secret agent up into the temple. And they would have given Jesus some real standing when they said, well you cast out demons by hells above, he would have said, well what about that time? That leper got cleansed, and you offered a sacrifice to God and thanksgiving for it because you recognized it as valid. That's what Jesus wanted out of this guy, and that's not what he gets. We get to verse 45. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely that Jesus had healed him, that he was the miracle worker, that he was going to give him physical benefits. And it spread, and he spread the word so that Jesus could no longer go into a town openly but stayed out in the country, and the people came to him from every corner. So in healing this leper, that direction Jesus didn't quite want his ministry to go, that focus on preaching the kingdom and belief and repentance, gets sidelined. And we, we tend to read that through our eyes that it's good that this man goes out and evangelizes that Jesus is the miracle worker, but in a way, that fame that, that he spreads out regarding Christ 
blocks the fact that Christ is trying to come in and preach the kingdom of God, judgment, if it were, and repentance. Now I can think of quite a few applications on this one. The One of the core problems that we find today is just in preaching the gospel, there's often the fact that Jesus' fame and his reputation can get in the way of Jesus' message. Jesus is known as being the conduit of God's love, as the forgiver of all sins, as the one who connects us with God, and many times that gets hollowed out and separated from any sense that you should have conviction, of any sense Jesus preached that there's a kingdom of God and a kingdom of the world, and they ain't the same. We stretch that out and put Jesus in as the intermediary wedge to almost block the conviction of what he said. It, it's not always that bad, though, but we can just as often as disciples get caught in that physicality trap. Now again, I have to say it because it must be encouraged because we never do enough of it, but there are many Christians who do lots of good works that are bodily. There's hospitals with the names of saints on them, with the names of denominations on them, and they do real good work healing bodies. But one of the things that is a conflict among Christians, especially of my generation, is there's always a sense that we want a church that, that does practical good. But it can become a rabbit hole in which a church does lots of practical good and becomes known throughout society for doing the practical good. One of the things I find the most frustrating is, is if you just explain to people what economists know about going to church, it's worth 10% of your lifetime earnings. If you come to church, you get a 10% bump in your lifetime earnings. Churches do a lot of good just by being in their communities. They clothe the, the, under the naked, they feed the sick, and they do a lot of good things. And there's a lot of churches, though, and getting back to my generation, that say that's what they want to focus on. They don't want to focus on the spiritual panics. They want to mobilize and see themselves as being forces for good and change. And you have a great many churches that go in for political programs. Well, we don't really need to talk about the spiritual stuff, poverty, and things like that. That's how we're going to bring the kingdom in here. And they kind of end up falling to this temptation that Jesus is out there in the wilderness praying against, which is, Lord, don't let the healing, don't let the miracles, don't let the casting out of demons, even though this is Christ who's preaching the kingdom that has come to overthrow the kingdom of Satan, override the fact that I have come to preach the kingdom of God and the need to repent for the time has come. And there's just an application here, many places where churches are not shy do the healing. They're not shy to have the healing ministry to lay on hands, but they are very shy to ever say the kingdom has come and very scared to ever say the time is nigh and repent. And it just kind of, we can follow this up for a few other bonus applications. We see in Peter, in that little vignette, with his mother-in-law, that 
intimate portrait of a disciple's family. And it calls again to mind the stakes of following Christ. A, a nice secondary application, not quite in keeping with today's message, but perhaps it is. There is just as much in the stakes of Peter having to leave his family, his home, and his comfort for the sake of the gospel. Jesus, throughout the whole gospel of Mark, will have to leave off popularity, will have to leave off healing. He's already having to avoid synagogues and go out into the desert. He, he's trying to avoid the crowds, even though he's perfectly willing, even though he has a heart and desire to heal. He tells the leper, I will be clean. Even Jesus, who's able to do all those things, must give in a way so it is to keep himself on that message of repentance and the kingdom. That binding, for this reason I have come, in verse 38, just is food for thought. One apologetic issue that comes up a whole bunch is why didn't Jesus just go into the hospital and empty the sucker out? One of these days, I'm hoping some saint is blessed with the ability to go to bed just to quiet that one up because it would be really cool to see. But the answer there is that's not the reason Christ came. The story that we celebrate on today's Sunday of the Ascension, and we'll celebrate next Sunday with the Pentecost, that big kingdom of God, that which is outside of ourselves and this life and the concerns of this world, that very kingdom of heaven, as Matthew calls it, is the reason Christ has come. And it would do us well as a church and as believers to make sure that is where we are focused. Because I will challenge you here, as my end, just like that crowd, you can make a decision for Christ that isn't on the proper position. There were many people in that crowd who believed in and we hear about the here you have faith, let it be done to you. They believed that Jesus was the miracle man, that he was the healer. They were probably they didn't have any philosophical debate like the Pharisees do when we get next week when he tells the man your sins are forgiven, get up and walk. There are a great many Christians who make decisions for Christ that he can forgive my sins, he is the miracle worker, he can cast the demons out of my life. But Christ here in his life, in this message, is trying to push you, oh Christian, to make a deeper decision that I totally back you making and would, would love to see you get to. Jesus is always in all these things pushing towards a decision of repentance in the heart and aligning with the kingdom of heaven and those greater things that God is doing. And in some ways, it's one of the reasons churches can struggle with kind of the coldness in the pews. I'm not, I'm not trying to ever invalidate anyone's decision to Jesus. Jesus never tells these people, come to your healing, get lost, you're not here for the right reason. I don't want to do that. But what can happen is, is the pews can get full of people who've made the decisions for Jesus that are, in a way, inappropriate. They haven't dealt with Christ who actually cuts to the quick. So they can believe in the power of Christ, they can believe in the good feeling Christ, in the he loves everybody Christ, but they struggle when they get to the Jesus that says something they don't like. And I know all of you who've been believers your whole life have had that experience of a Jesus who says something you don't like. 
But it's that confrontation for which Christ has come, and it's for that confrontation that he invites us because it is through that 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 deep working of the Holy Spirit takes hold and lives are truly transformed. So we're looking at Mark again, trying to get rid of our, in a way, get rid of our pre-definition of Jesus Christ, Son of God, and what we think that means, and let him, let Mark and his gospel define it for us. These people in the crowd thought that being Jesus Christ meant he was the miracle worker, being Son of God meant he cast out demons and everything goes well. And Christ is here through his actions saying, being Christ means the kingdom has come and the time for decision is now. Let us pray.